Come, Holy Spirit, we pray, overrule and overwhelm. Bring to bear upon us the truths of the Word of God. Read this morning from the Gospel according to St. Luke. Bring to bear upon us the truths of Jesus, the universal King, entering into his city. For a crown made of thorns, a cross for a throne. Bring to bear upon us the truth of his crucifixion. Dying for sins that are mine and ours. Bring these things to bear upon us for our good. That in recognizing who Jesus is, we may recognize who we are and offer repentance and confession. And in the grace of Jesus Christ, be restored, forgiven, renewed. And so come, Holy Spirit, we pray, overrule and overwhelm. My mouth and my words, our ears and our hearing, so that what is uttered today in this sermon is in accordance for the word of God, for the good of God's people, and for the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Wow, <clears throat> oh, Palm Sunday. What a powerful time this singular event uh, begins for us here at Emmanuel Church. As a lot of churches across this world, we, we sing a lot of different songs. And one song that's come into our, our catalog of worship over the past year, year and a half, is a song that goes... Uh, well, forgive me, I'm not going to sing it because I'm terribly out of tune. He's the king of my heart, right? It's a great song. Really enjoy worshiping the Lord through that song. And yet I fear that sometimes in our Christian lives, we become far too individualized and far too individualistic so that Jesus is nothing more ever than the king of my heart. What we need to see this morning as we look at Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem is that while Jesus is the king of every one of us, our individual hearts, he is also the king of all of creation. As we'll hear later in the sermon, that there is not a single aspect of this created order that the risen Jesus does not claim as his own. And so while we will absolutely continue to worship Jesus through that song, he is the king of my heart. He is the king of all of creation. As Jesus rode down the Mount of Olives, and as he rode across to Kidron Valley, as he rode up into the city of Jerusalem, he did so not as a messianic pretender, not as the winner of an election, not as one who has been acclaimed as king by some assembly of people. Rather, he does so in fulfillment of God's word, in fulfillment of prophecy, in an explicit claim to be the king of all of creation because of who he is, the incarnation of the eternal son of God, because of what he has come to do, bring salvation to many, and eschatologically what he will fulfill when he comes again. God's kingdom upon all of creation. Jesus is the king of our hearts. And he is the king of all that is. And there he sat upon the back of a donkey. 
His triumphal entry began the top of Mount Olives or on one part of the Mount of Olives. His ride led him across the Kidron Valley. It led him up into the city of Jerusalem. His ride into the city ended with Jesus driving the sellers of sacrificial animals and money changers out of the temple. And all along the way, Jesus was proclaimed and heralded as king. A crowd, we read, spread their cloaks on the ground. That's the ancient world equivalent of spreading out a red carpet for a very important person. These crowds rejoiced and they praised God for the mighty works that they had seen. And they shouted out, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. What Jesus was doing could not be missed by anybody who was in attendance that day. And what Jesus was doing cannot be missed by us today. What he was doing within his actions far more than in his words was proclaiming himself to be the king. In all four Gospels, we read of the triumphal entry of Jesus. And a particular scholar, a former bishop of Durham in England, his name's N.T. Wright, he says this about the triumphal entry. Within his own time and culture, his riding on a donkey over the Mount of Olives across Kidron and up to the Temple Mount spoke more powerfully than words could have done of a royal claim. That's why the Pharisees come to him as our gospel reading from Luke ended this morning. They said, hey, shut your crowd up because they knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. They knew exactly what the crowd was saying. Jesus is the king. But what kind of king is Jesus? It's one thing to say that Jesus is the king of Israel. It's another thing to say that Jesus is the king of all of creation. It's another thing to say that Jesus is the king of my heart and our hearts but what kind of king is he? This morning, in order to answer the question, what kind of king is this, we're going to take a brief journey through Scripture as we look at three passages from the Old Testament looking forward to the king, one passage from the New Testament reflecting upon the coming of the king in order to see just what kind of king Jesus is. What kind of king Jesus was, what kind of G king Jesus forever will be. Our first stop on this journey through Scripture is found in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. I draw your attention to the notes and quotes portion of your bulletin this morning because all of these passages we'll be reflecting upon are listed for you. Our first stop on this journey through Scripture is Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. This is the prophecy that Jesus in Matthew and John is directly connected to fulfilling. As a side note here, St. Luke doesn't refer back to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, most likely because St. Luke is writing to primarily a Gentile audience. And he's not necessarily trying to prove that Jesus is the king of all creation through fulfillment of Scripture, but through other means. But the fulfillment is present in the actions nonetheless. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, the prophet proclaims, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
Zechariah here in this prophecy, uh, at least 400, if not 600, 800 years before the time of Jesus, Zechariah fleshes out what kind of king Jesus is, what kind of king Jesus was, what kind of king Jesus forever will be. When he writes that the king is righteous, having salvation, humble, and riding on a donkey. How ridiculous does that sound? Riding on a donkey. Donkey was one of my uh, great uncle's favorite swear words, driving in the traffic of Houston, calling other people, you donkey? Donkeys are beasts of burden. Donkeys are mostly connected with stubbornness. Donkeys are certainly in our modern world not connected to kings or generals or people of power and authority. When it comes to kings, if we think of kings, sandals and swords, we think of kings riding upon powerful war horses clad in armor. In a more modern way, if we were to think of leaders, we think of expressions of power. We think of generals riding in tanks as they entered into a conquered city. Or perhaps we think of a president landing on an aircraft carrier in a fighter jet. But here Jesus is proclaiming. He is showing what kind of king he is. You see, in the ancient world, the donkey was actually the preferred mount of a king or of a leader or of a prince who mingled with their people in peace. There was a time and a place for a leader in the ancient world to mount the war horse, to get in a chariot behind powerful horses, and that was a time of war, a time of conquest. But when it was peace, the king rode upon the back of a donkey. Jesus then, as he descends the Mount of Olives, as he crosses the Kidron, as he goes up into the city of Jerusalem, is proclaiming himself to be the king who's at peace with his people. And more to the point, he is proclaiming Jerusalem as his own city that's already his been conquered. He doesn't have to bring out the soldiers and the horses and the swords because it's already owned by him. What kind of king is Jesus? He's the king of peace. As he approaches the city of Jerusalem, it's already his and he claims it as such. It's pretty phenomenal, pretty important for us to recognize that Jesus comes differently than we may have expected. This king, Zechariah, tells us he's righteous. That means he's right. That means he's just. That means he's correct. That means he's the one who sets the law. Zechariah tells us that he has salvation, probably intended in two ways. The one who comes riding on the back of the donkey himself has received rescue in order to offer rescue. And so it is that Jesus comes as the king, having been delivered from the jaws of death at the end of the week will turn and give people salvation from death. The righteous and saving king is also referred to as humble or gentle in its original context is probably a reference to one who's experienced affliction and trial and come through victoriously. What do we see here from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9? What kind of king is Jesus? Jesus is the king who is righteous and humble, the king who will save through his own suffering. Jesus rode down the Mount of Olives when he crossed the Kidron, when he went up into Jerusalem. This is the kind of king he was. This is the kind of king he is. And this is the king he ever will be. Our second stop on our journey this morning is found in Psalm 118. And here this morning from this psalm, we see that Jesus is the king appointed and approved by God. It can become easy for us 
during Holy Week especially, for us to think of Jesus as sort of the center of this perfect storm of events that's, current, that's going on around him, that uh, things are spinning out of his control, that things are just happening to him, and that he's sort of a passive participant. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, Luke goes to great pains to tell us that even the getting of the donkey itself occurs under the sovereign authority of Jesus. He says to his disciples, go into the city, grab a donkey. When they say to you this, you say to them that, and this will happen. And Luke tells us that is exactly what happened. We need to recognize here that Jesus comes as the king, appointed and approved by God, and that Jesus is actually in control of what is happening to him. From beginning to end, he surrenders and he submits in sovereign control. In what is perhaps the most familiar part of Psalm 118, that's verses 22 and 23, we read, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus takes this particular passage and he applies it to himself in Matthew chapter 21 at verse 42. In a conversation with chiefs, priests, and Pharisees, he says, I am that cornerstone. St. Peter refers back to it in 1 Peter chapter 2. And so it's important for us to recognize Jesus understood himself as being the cornerstone anointed and appointed by God. It isn't because the crowds herald him that Jesus is king. Jesus didn't win the popular vote. He didn't carry the electoral college. It wasn't because an academy selected him as best in show. Jesus is the king because of who he is and because of God's appointment of him as king. The author of the letter to the Hebrews puts it this way, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Sent by God, enthroned by God, Jesus is the king because God appointed him to be so. And even more than that, God is pleased with his king. God approves of his king. Psalm 118 is a subsection of the entirety of the Psalms used for a very specific point of praise and worship in the life and faith of the Jewish faith. Used to greet pilgrims as they entered into the city for the Feast of Tabernacles, Psalm 118 depicts the king leading pilgrims to the temple for worship. The greeting of verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, recognizes that the king and his crowd came with the Lord's approval and results in praise and worship to the highest of heaven. Every gospel account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, puts that phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, on the lips of the crowd who proclaim Jesus recognizing that he is appointed and approved by God. As he rode down the Mount of Olives, as he crossed the Kidron, as he went into Jerusalem, Jesus came as a universal king, the universal king who is humble, who is righteous, who has salvation, who is the king of peace, who will save through affliction, appointed and approved 
by God. Our third stop on our ride with Jesus through the Old Testament is found in Isaiah chapter 50. In the book of Isaiah's prophecy, in chapter 42, a certain figure begins to emerge. The one that we can call the servant of the Lord. Starting in chapter 42 and appearing again in chapters 49 and 50 and again in 52 and 53, the servant of the Lord appears to be a special agent of Yahweh, appointed, sent in order to accomplish the purposes of God. The servants here in 42 and 49, 50, 52, 53 of Isaiah, the servant is quite often depicted as one who suffers greatly, Sometimes we call him the suffering servant, but who conquers through his suffering and brings about salvation and justice. This morning we heard Isaiah chapter 50 verses 4 through 9 depicting the servant's confidence in the face of his suffering due to his trust in the vindication of God. Starting at verse 5. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. The servant of Isaiah 50 is obedient to the word of God. He did not turn from God's call and mission. He didn't just give it up and turn around. Jesus, as he entered the city upon the back of a donkey, Jesus knew what he was riding toward, and he knew what it would entail, and Jesus rode on. Isaiah writes, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Jesus knew what awaited him at the end of the week. Jesus knew the scourge that was to rip his flesh. Jesus knew he would be struck in the face, that he would be abused, mocked, and spat upon. And yet, down the Mount of Olives and across the Kidron Valley and up into Jerusalem, Jesus rode on. You see, he trusted in God for his vindication, and so he was obedient. Isaiah chapter 50 goes on, But the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem as the king, obedient to God, even in the face of his impending suffering and death because of his confidence in God's Lord, in the Lord God's vindication of him. So even as he contemplated the suffering that was to come in the Garden of Gethsemane, even as he prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, Jesus remained obedient and said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was obedient in his suffering, confident of his vindication by God and in his victory over his enemies. He knew all of this as he sat upon the donkey. He knew all of this as he heard the cheers of the crowd. He knew that he was riding to his death upon the cross to make possible the forgiveness of our sins, and Jesus rode on anyway. He knew the vindication to come. He knew the resurrection and ascension that were going to be his. 
Jesus knew the path to glory was through the valley of death, and he rode on. We can only say that Jesus did this out of the love and kindness of the triune God for his creation. We can only say that King Jesus willingly rode to his death in obedience to the Father due to his desire to work out the plan of salvation that had been laid out within the infinitely holy and wise counsel of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus did this for sinners like you, sinners like me. He did this because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit desired then and still desire now to reconcile sinful and unholy humanity to the holy and righteous God and to have done then all that is necessary for that reconciliation to occur. What kind of king is Jesus? Jesus is the king who is obedient in his suffering for the salvation of many, confident in God's vindication. Our final stop this morning comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And here we find some of our threads from this morning. Jesus appointed and anointed by God to be the king. Jesus, the one who is humble, who is righteous, coming together. This idea that Jesus is willing to suffer, coming together here in Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11. There's much that can and perhaps should be said about this whole passage. But for our purpose, purposes today, let's look at verses 9 through 11. I'm going to begin reading back in verse 8, but we really want to focus on 9, 10, and 11. St. Paul writes that Jesus, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God, was highly exalt, had a, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And here we see this truth. Jesus is the universal king of all creation. And he will be recognized as such by all of creation, whether by conviction or by compulsion. When Jesus rode down the Mount of Olives, as he crossed the Kidron Valley, rode up into the city of Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. He did so in fulfillment of prophecy as the king of the Jews and the king of creation. In the same prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9, the one which claimed the king would come riding on a donkey continues on in verse 10 and states, His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus is the universal king. And we don't just make it up after his crucifixion and resurrection. Jesus is the universal king as he always was supposed to be, as he always was intended to be. Jesus is the universal king from the very beginning. And as he rides into Jerusalem, he's claiming not just the city is his, but the world is his, whose kingdom, his kingdom, will go from river to river, from sea to sea, to the ends of the earth. There's not a single part of all creation that goes unclaimed by King Jesus. As Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper has famously stated, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! And that includes my heart, that includes your heart, but that includes all of creation. 
Jesus, the incarnation of the eternal Son of God, through whom all things were made, is the universal king of all of creation. This does not mean a universal salvation. This does mean that Jesus is the king, even over those who do not believe. His kingship is not subjective to our reception of it. It is objective to it. This does not mean that Jesus' kingship will one this does mean that Jesus' kingship will one day be recognized by all, as every knee will bend at his name. The knee will bend in the presence of the king of the creation, either out of the conviction of faith or out of begrudging compulsion and recognition. So what kind of king is Jesus as he descends the Mount of Olives, as he crosses the Kidron Valley, as he goes up into Jerusalem? What kind of king is Jesus? Jesus is the king who is righteous and humble, appointed and approved by God, obedient in his death for the salvation of many, and vindicated by God as the universal king of all of creation. But what difference does that make? It's 2019. What's the big deal? I'm doing pretty well on my own, right? I'm self-sufficient. I'm a self-made man. What difference does this make to know that Jesus is the king of all of creation? What difference does it make to know that Jesus is this kind of king? I would submit to you that it makes all the difference in the world. I would submit to you that the only appropriate response to this Jesus, to this king, the only appropriate response is faith. The only appropriate response is trust. The only appropriate response is humble submission to him for the forgiveness of sins to him as Lord and Savior. Because that is the only response that brings us life. That is the only response that brings us into connection with God. That is the only response that turns us back into being truly human. So what difference does it make for us? I'm going to offer you three differences that it makes. Jesus, the king of all creation. First, because Jesus is the king of all creation, we are called to be a people of the king to respond to him with faith and thus be a people of his story. You see, if Jesus is our king, then we become a part of his kingdom, and we become a part of his story. His story, by the way, is the true story of creation. Jesus' story is the true story of the beginning and of the end and everything in between. And so if we come into faith in Jesus, we come into his kingdom with him, then we become a part of the story of creation and the purpose of creation. British missionary and, uh, British missionary and bishop Leslie Newbigin put it this way, to be human is to be a part of a story, and to be fully human as God intends is to be a part of the true story and to understand its beginning and its ending. The true story is one of which the central clues are given in the Bible, and the hinge of the story on which all its meaning turns is the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the message we are entrusted with, and we owe it to all people to share it. Jesus, the universal king of all creation, is bringing his creation to its intended end, to its purpose. And he calls all people within his creation to respond to him, to join with him in the true story of which he is the center. It's not an idea of competing claims among equal true stories. There is one true story for all of creation, and the center of that one true story is Jesus Christ. 
The gospel of Jesus, the universal king of all creation, has therefore a universal intent. The crucified, risen, and ascended King Jesus, who will return, is for every single sinful human being. That means every one of us. And he calls people to be a people of faith, to believe in him, to enter into his life, to enter into his story. And so it is. We are called to be a people of the king and thus a people of the king's story. We are called to be a people of trust in the king who has worked for us. Theologian Michael Horton has once said that the gospel is not good instructions, not a good idea, and not good advice. The gospel is an announcement of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Jesus entered into what we call Holy Week as the righteous and humble universal king of all creation, appointed and approved by God to work out the salvation of many through his death and vindicating resurrection. That's who he is. And that identity alone is a call to believe in him. The identity of Jesus as the king of all creation, the suffering and rising Jesus, this identity alone is a call to trust. The only appropriate response to Jesus is to believe, is to trust in him. You see, one cannot simply skate through life being neutral about Jesus. One will either decide to accept him or reject him. To attempt to remain neutral, to sit the fence, is to reject him. This is who Jesus is. This is the true story of all of creation. These are the evidences that line up. These are the facts of the case. He is the saving king. The question is, do you believe him? The question is, do you trust him? The question is, is Jesus, while being the king of all creation, also the king of your heart and of your life? Jesus is the king. We are called as people within his creation to enter into his kingdom through faith. By grace, through faith. Coming into his kingdom is by grace through faith, and it carries with it obligations to obey with confidence in him. And that's the third thing. What difference does it make? We enter into the king's story. We have faith in the king. And we're called to be a people of obedience and confidence in the king. People of the kingdom obey the king with confidence in him. The people of the kingdom recognize that he is the one they are called to honor. He is the one they are called to please. He is the one they are called to worship and obey, just as they recognize their confidence for the present and the future is bound up in him who is, who was, who ever will be, and in what he has done for us. The people in the kingdom of Jesus know their job is to trust and obey, to have confidence in the king, to please the king. In this, we're called to live like the king. Jesus, who was and is humble and obedient, righteous and willing to suffer for the sake of others, for the purpose of their coming into his kingdom and trusting in the vindication of God, we are called to live like that. We can do no other. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do that which we've been given to do by King Jesus. To be a people of the king, to be a people of his story, is to respond to him in faith and with confident obedience, to live in this world under the rule and reign of King Jesus, inviting others to join with us in his kingdom. The identity of the king determines the missional purpose of the king's people. Here at Emmanuel, we've 
believe and trust that we've been given a vision to be a church that glorifies God by blessing people with gospel-centered ministries, that they may believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior and join us in building his kingdom. Not because we think it's a good idea, but because he thinks it's a good idea. Not because we want to make much of ourselves, but because we want to make much of Jesus. Not because we want our kingdom to grow, but because we want Jesus' kingdom to grow. Because Jesus is the king, the universal king of all creation. And Jesus doesn't just want to be the king of my heart or your heart in an individualized way. Jesus wants to be the king of his people. The king, righteous and humble, appointed and approved by God, obedient in his death for the salvation of many, and vindicated by God as the universal king of all of creation. We're called to be his people. We are called to be the people of King Jesus. I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Holy and gracious God, we do praise you and give you thanks. Come, and as we sing... Send your Holy Spirit upon us. Lord Jesus, be the king of our hearts and through us be the king of your creation. Expand your kingdom through us and be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue our worship this morning by standing together and singing.